Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. everyone. It's four o'clock in New York. Well, last night, it was just the beginning. An explosive and revelatory first night of public testimony by the January 6th Select Committee made its opening argument clear about the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol and who was at fault. One disgraced, twice impeached, deplatformed ex-president named Donald Trump. An unrelenting two hours that centered on the evidence, including never-before-seen testimony, gut-wrenching new video, the actual attack, and facts of the case that have never been reported in the press or anywhere else. All of it coalescing around a central argument that Trump himself was the engine and the fuel. His closest allies were the co-conspirators. And the plan itself, it was carefully orchestrated and executed to disrupt the fundamental functions of democracy and government. Over multiple months, Donald Trump oversaw and coordinated a sophisticated seven-part plan to overturn the presidential election and prevent the transfer of presidential power. In our hearings, you will see evidence of each element of this plan. Donald Trump and his advisors knew that he had, in fact, lost the election. But despite this, President Trump engaged in a massive effort to spread false and fraudulent information to convince huge portions of the U.S. population that fraud had stolen the election from him. On this point, there is no room for debate. Those who invaded our Capitol and battled law enforcement for hours were motivated by what President Trump had told them, that the election was stolen and that he was the rightful president. President Trump summoned the mob, assembled the mob, and lit the flame of this attack. Republican Congresswoman and committee vice chair Liz Cheney cutting straight to the heart of the case there that the panel will continue to lay out over the next several weeks. But you didn't have to take her word for it. The committee let their witnesses, some of Trump's closest insiders, do all the talking. Watch. I made it clear I did not agree with the idea of saying the election was stolen and putting out this stuff, which I told the president was bull. How did that affect your perspective about the election when Attorney General Barr made that statement? It affected my perspective. Um, I respect Attorney General Barr. Um, So I accepted what he was saying. Jared, uh, are you aware of um, instances where uh, Pat Cipollone threatened to resign? I I kind of, uh, like I said, my interest at that time was on trying to get as many pardons done. Uh, And I know that, you know, he was always him and the team were always saying, oh, we're going to resign. We're not going to be here if this happens, if that happens. So I kind of took it up to just be whining, to be honest with you. That happened. (laughs) The new evidence was voluminous. It was substantial. It included evidence of an effort by Republican Congressman Scott Perry and other Republican members of Congress to seek pardons 
for their roles in trying to overturn the 2020 election. It included an acknowledgement by Mark Meadows, one of the chief henchmen in Donald Trump's coup plot, that there appeared to be no there there on the fraud claims he was publicly peddling. There was testimony that Trump did not ever contact the military or lawmakers to help defend the U.S. Capitol against his supporters, the violent mob. Repeated threats to resign by White House counsel Pat Cipollone in this chilling revelation. Aware of the rioters' chance to hang Mike Pence, the president responded with this sentiment, quote, maybe our supporters have the right idea. Mike Pence, quote, deserves it. Mike Pence deserves it. That's what Donald Trump said about his own vice president when he was threatened with hanging by a mob of Trump supporters. Today, we're also learning more details about the witnesses yet to come. They include, NBC News has just learned, former acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen, whose attempted ouster was part of a plan by Trump allies to install a loyalist at DOJ. He'll testify Wednesday alongside two other former DOJ officials, Richard Donahue and Steve Engel. Joining us now, though, the chair of the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack, Congressman Benny Thompson. Um, Congressman, thank you so much for spending some time with us. I, I, we were riveted. We watched it. I watched it along with my my colleagues in the studio. And I wonder what your sort of after action conversations were as a committee behind closed doors after it ended. Well, as you know, we've been working for over a year, uh, Nicole, trying to put uh, what happened, the facts and circumstances. And so what you saw last night uh, was the finished product. We tried to tell the public uh, that body of work. Uh, that we've put together, uh, the hundreds of witnesses that we've interviewed, uh, the hundreds of thousands of exhibits that we've had an opportunity to look at. And so for the public, we made in that period of time an opportunity, uh, much of which in, from a video standpoint, the public never saw. Uh, but our job is to get to the facts and circumstances around what occurred and then ultimately come with recommendations. So the public has a right to know. Uh, we are convinced, uh, based on what you heard last night, that Donald Trump is the reason January 6th occurred. He invited people to come to Washington. He brought uh, right-wing uh, extremists like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers here who had no real interest in protest. Their interest was to scout the Capitol, uh, look for vulnerabilities and breach it and stop the orderly transfer of power. Congressman, what was so, um, I think in the moment, the, the, the gas that were heard in the actual room where you all were and, and, and around sets and that I heard anecdotally from people that were watching was the new evidence that, that both you and your vice chairwoman opened with, um, uh, you know, for, for, for Liz Cheney's part, it was that line that one of the first things she said or she, she played Donald Trump's remarks was that to Trump, his supporters were doing exactly what he wanted them to do. It suggests a, 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 a list of witnesses that were inside the Oval Office and inside the West Wing. And I wonder if you can preview any of that visibility that you had that you teased out a little bit last night. Well, yes. And over the next uh, six hearings, you, you'll see a broader explanation of that. 
but we will be showing you uh, in no uncertain terms uh, individuals either by video or by witness testimony that they basically told the president you've lost the election there was no fraud involved and if you continue to try to use assets of the gov government i.e. the Department of Justice to promote this lie we'll quit uh, but if you quit if you stop listening to uh, the Ruli Giudianis and other people of the world, uh, we will still quit because they are talking about a political solution and we're talking about the legal facts as it relates to the case. You can't say to the Department of Justice, you need to send this letter and you don't have the authority or jurisdiction to do it to different states to try to change the process by which Votes are counted. So uh, we looked at a lot of things. We talked to a lot of people, as I indicated. But for the public uh, to understand that when the people in the highest levels of government tell you that there's no fraud or there's no factual basis by which you can go out and tell the public that this election was stolen and you still promote it, then obviously your motive is clearly political. Yeah, and, and the evidence establishes that so clearly. I worked on campaigns, and when you um, win, you'll take the news of the win from anyone. But when you lose, you keep going down. To, you sure? Bring in the pollster. You sure? Bring in the data guy. I mean, you went through that whole list, the campaign lawyer, the campaign data guy. Right. They all told him he lost. Um, talk about the importance of establishing knowledge deep inside Trump's family, his inside campaign circle, the highest levels of the executive branch of the government. You had Bill Barr saying the same thing. Why was that so important last night? Well, it's important to show that Donald Trump was really operating within a vacuum. Uh, and that vacuum was individuals who really didn't have uh, their, the pulse of what was really going on. They were absolutely promoting a lie. When you look at the highest law enforcement person in the country telling you to your face uh, there's no fraud or, or anything that irregular about the election. And this was your person. But you started listening to people who knew they were members of Congress, who knew they were promoting false ideas. And those members all of a sudden start looking for pardons because they knew they were promoting something that was clearly illegal. So, uh, Nicole, over the next six hearings, uh, we will present to the public uh, all these individuals. The one thing we leave open is for any individual who has a difference of opinion, uh, any individual who would want to come and say what you presented is not true, uh, they can come to our committee. They can come under oath, either in deposition, transcribed interview, or if there's an opportunity for them to come uh, before the public uh, and ask and, and, and get the, the response that they want to, to give, we'll give them that opportunity. So we are concerned that what we saw uh, and continue to see is denial on the part of the former president and members of Congress that what happened on January 6th 
was not a planned, coordinated incident that even when they were told, they went on with the planning. Uh, the president encouraged people in his speech at the Ellipse uh, to go to the Capitol. He said they are taking your rights from you right now. You need to go and stop them. I will come with you. He had no intentions of coming. He had already been told by Secret Service. They can't protect him in a crowd like that. You can't go. So he knew. But in other words, he promoted it. He encouraged it. And other individuals around him did likewise. So uh, I think what you saw last night was a down payment on more to come. Wow. Um, when, you, when you put it that way, I, I just I just have to come come back and ask you about the establishment of the timeline of the um, Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. I mean, the documentary filmmaker established a timeline totally separate and existing in its own ecosystem from the rally and seemed to annihilate the idea that this was an excited Trump rally gone sideways. I wonder if you can just talk about how that evidence was intended to be received. I mean, it, it was clear that that what was presented last night in evidence is that the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys met the night before the insurrection in a parking garage. That's on film. It's not in dispute. And then they were making their way to the Capitol while before the Trump event had even started. And then the mob is directed by Trump, who tells them he'll go with them. They come in and they, they eke out all the violence and damage and medieval combat, the blood that officers testified to slip on when they were trying to fight them off. Tell, tell us the importance of establishing that timeline in yesterday's, last night's testimony. Well, what we have to do is make sure that the public understands that people did not just leave the eclipse and walk to the Capitol. The Proud Boys and others had already assembled at the, the peace circle, surveilling the, the Capitol and making sure that once they wanted to breach it, they went to the most vulnerable site. They went to an area that was the least guarded. Uh, they made sure that individuals penetrated it at a certain area. And when reinforcements came in, they overwhelmed the re 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 reinforcements. So it was a planned effort. Uh, you can see from the video. And we wanted to prove that this wasn't something that just happened. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't a normal congressional tour. Uh, it wasn't a traditional speech. Uh, this was a riot. This was an insurrection that was planned and orchestrated by Donald Trump. Congressman, I have to ask you, just based on your, your responses this afternoon, if Donald Trump asked to come and testify before the committee, would you accommodate that request? Yes. Wow. All right. Well, we will um, we will keep our eyes. We, wel we welcome we welcome the former president. Uh, he will have to come under oath. He's a citizen. And if he thinks he can come to our committee under oath and perjure himself, then uh, I would suggest he not come. Congressman Benny Thompson, um, we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us at a, at a time when these public hearings have started. We're, we're grateful for the opportunity. Thank you, sir. Thank you.
Let's bring into our coverage Betsy Woodruff Swan. She's a national correspondent with Politico. Also joining us, Frank Figluzzi, former FBI Assistant Director for Counterintelligence. And Jeremy Bash is back, former Chief of Staff for the CIA and Department of Defense. They're all MSNBC contributors. Betsy Woodruff Swan, you have a scoop that I've been dying to ask you about. I've been talking about it on the air for all seven hours that I was on TV yesterday. Some of this testimony that Liz Cheney opened with comes from some of the visibility inside deep inside the West Wing, inside the Oval Office. And I, and I wonder if you think there's any correlation between a witness like Cassidy Hutchinson switching lawyers, which you reported yesterday, and, and some of what was teased out in the opening. I asked Congressman Adam Schiff if he wanted to reveal who that witness was that Liz Cheney was, was quoting from and some of that early evidence she cited about Donald Trump um, thinking that the rioters had a good idea when they suggested hanging Mike Pence and Donald Trump being happy that his supporters were doing exactly what he wanted them to. But I, I wonder if you think there's sort of an, an opening of the floodgates with, with at least uh, one witness with eyes inside the West Wing. The change in legal representation that Cassidy Hutchinson made yesterday, just hours before this first committee hearing, without question, is a is an important development in terms of what happens next for the select committee. We don't know who actually gave the committee the quote that Cheney read yesterday, but we do know that it is consistent with testimony that Hutchinson has provided behind closed doors under oath to the select committee. And one thing that I can share as well is that the fact that Hutchinson changed lawyers, according to a person familiar with her thinking, signals an increased willingness on her part to cooperate with the select committee. It's an 11th hour development making a legal change this dramatic, this close to congressional hearings is not unheard of, but it is unusual. And that means it's so important. Hutchinson's prior lawyer was Stefan Passantino. He was literally the Trump White House's ethics lawyer, a partner of the president of the law firm that he's at his rights previous. Trump's former chief of staff. He has very deep Trump world connections and relationships. Hutchinson's new lawyer, meanwhile, is Jody Hunt, who was the chief of staff to then Attorney General Jeff Sessions when Sessions decided to recuse from supervising the Russia, pro Russia probe, the, that, the special counsel's probe, a move that absolutely enraged Donald Trump but that was completely in line with the norms and the regulations and the rules of the Justice Department. One of the most consequential decisions that any DOJ official made during the Trump administration, and it was a decision where Hunt was absolutely instrumental. That's the lawyer who is now going to be guiding Hutchinson as she handles the next several weeks of this investigation and figures out what next steps are going to be in terms of what her cooperation with the select committee looks like. It's a, it's a big deal involving an important witness. And, you know, time will tell how just how much of a significance we see from this. Yeah. And I, I, I agree with everything that, that Betsy has said, Jeremy, and it, and it, it is a huge deal. And the, the timing, you know, there, there are no coincidental um, um, timings on decisions like that, that, that obviously are going to be public almost instantly. Um, I, I want your thoughts on all of it, Jeremy, but I just want to start with the news that that, that NBC's confirmed today that that. Um, Jeffrey Rosen, the former acting attorney general, Richard Donahue, the former acting deputy attorney general, and Steve Engel, former U.S. assistant attorney general, um, uh, who also oversaw the Office of Legal Counsel, will testify on Wednesday. Um, Bill Barr, 
played a starring role, said this anchor never. But Bill Barr, using the word bullshit, which we bleeped out, I I hope people saw it already the first time when it was delivered live. Um, That's how he described Donald Trump's claims of election fraud and not just in closed room doors where Donald Trump didn't appear. But what he testified to, I think a couple of different ways, was that he told Donald Trump so. What, and we heard Chairman Thompson talk about the importance of that. But, but what, what, what do you make of everything you saw last night and of this testimony still to come from former DOJ officials? Yeah, I think the key thing, Nicole, is that there was intent. There was intent by Donald Trump to prevent the peaceful transfer of power, to do so through illegal means, through unconstitutional means, and through violent means. And he can no longer claim, because his attorney general totally discredited his claim, he can no longer claim that he was just trying to press his legal rights in court, or that he was just trying to contest the results of an election as other candidates for public office. He was told repeatedly he not only lost his own Justice Department, as these witnesses will testify, he lost his own attorney general, who would defend them to the hilt on the Russia matter. He lost his own daughter. He lost his own White House counsel. He lost his own staff. He lost his own pollster. He lost his own campaign team. He lost everybody around him. They all told him, in no uncertain terms, you're wrong. And that establishes clearly for all the world to see that intentionality that he decided to obstruct government, that he decided to prevent the peaceful transfer of power illegally and through violence. Um, Can we talk about um, Jared Kushner's answer to the question? I mean, to basically call a White House counsel a wimp or a weenie. I mean, I don't know what his point was about whining, but, um, you know, this is exactly one weenie uh, introduced into evidence last night. And his name is Jared Kushner, Frank. Mm, Boy, I have to tell you, I uh... When I see that little clip of, of Kushner, I just I hearken back to many, many interviews I've done in, in my FBI career where you just want to say, sit up, you sniveling, arrogant individual. I'm interviewing you. Um, the, the disdain that Kushner uh, exhibited just in that brief clip, the body language, he's leaning back in his chair like, you know, I can't be bothered with this. And, and the notion that that literally and figuratively, the guy, the White House counsel is the guy who represents what? The rule of law, the, the right way to do something. And he's saying, I'm going to quit. And Kushner is saying both literally and figuratively to the concept of rule of law and the individual representing rule of law at the White House. Uh, that's whining. It's whining. Yeah, happens all the time. Not just that that's whining. He he describes, I mean, what's so amazing, and and Frank, this this to me, I wonder if this was a red flag for law enforcement. Uh, Maybe Pat Zipoloni will feel compelled to clarify it. But Jared is talking about handing out as many pardons as he could as quickly as he could. And we knew there were a lot. And they didn't all go to uh, above board, seemingly deserving figures. Um, and, And Zipoloni threatened to quit so many times that he'd become immune to the threat of a White House counsel to quit. That set off uh, alarms on 10 different levels when I heard it. Yeah, you're actually I'm glad you brought this up because because I think many of us are so are, are so taken with Kushner's uh, dismissing Cipollone as a whiner that we've missed the point he was saying, because I was really busy trying to give out as many pardons as possible. Right. What? What? Right. And, and who to whom? Right. And I, again, this hints of more to come. Liz Cheney has told us. There's more coming with regard to pardons, multiple members of Congress seeking pardons. That's, that's in 
that's an indication of criminal mindset. You don't seek a pardon if you think everything you've done is legal. It's also interesting that we learned that Jared was handing out pardons as many as he could, as quickly as he could over the objections that were so severe from the White House counsel. He threatened to resign so many times that Jared Kushner grew numb to it as he oversaw that last minute 11th hour pardon process. We also shouldn't let it skip by that Donald Trump attacked his own daughter for the testimony that we saw in that clip. We're going to keep going. We'll bring all this to you. No one is going anywhere. When we come back, we'll look at what's ahead for next week's hearings. There are three of them, I think. What it says about where the committee is heading next, plus stunning testimony from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. That would be General Mark Milley, who told the committee that Trump's White House tried to push Milley to peddle a lie, a false narrative, that the president was actually in command. And that's not even the most shocking thing. The most shocking thing is that he wasn't. Later in the program, why these hearings are so important and how the insurrection wasn't just a one-time event. The ongoing, still going assault on democracy and more. When Deadline White House continues after a quick break, stay with us. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. The insurrection on January 6th, one of the darkest chapters in our nation's history. A brutal assault on our democracy, brutal attack on law enforcement, some losing their lives. And we, uh, we heard about it last night again. It's important to the American people understand what truly happened and to understand that the same forces that led January 6th remain at work today. It's about our democracy itself. We have to protect our democracy. We're back with our our panel. Jeremy Bash, our friend Dan Goldman, um, tweeted something provocative and then backed it up in an on-air appearance after the hearings with us. He he talked about Donald Trump being should be worried about handcuffs. I mean, did you see the kind of evidence that would make it hard to imagine Merrick Garland doesn't eventually investigate the actual plot to overturn the result of the 2020 election using all the levers of the government to do so? Look, Nicole, here's where I think we are on that. I I mean, I think clearly the Justice Department wants to make clear that no one's above the law, not even a former president. I think if this were any other case of somebody trying to obstruct justice, somebody trying to uh, engage in violent, seditious acts, it's, it's an open and shut case. And in fact, I thought one of the things that was done very effectively last night was that the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers were specifically tied to the Donald Trump inner circle, the conspiracy, the decision, the attack, the armed assault. So, you know, I think in that regard, this is a pretty clear cut case. That said, I don't believe that the Justice Department has made the decision as to whether they want to take that consequential step of charging a former president. 
And, you know, sitting here today, you know, I don't know all the factors that are going into it. Obviously, we all well understand what's on one side of that ledger and what's on the other side of that ledger. But that's a huge decision, Nicole, and I don't believe the Justice Department has made it yet. Well, say more. I mean, Jeremy, what 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 argue? I mean, I think that what the committee is, is has done is they've almost moved beyond something that was reported a couple months ago and debated hotly, even even in the, the committee members interviews following that reporting, which is that the committee was wrestling with whether or not to make a criminal referral to DOJ. It doesn't matter if they do or not. They're going to showcase the evidence in these traumatic hearings. And what they seem to and, and, and yep. Chairman Thompson just make clear the intent of the evidence was, was to show that Donald Trump knew he'd lost. Bill Barr told him he lost. And Ivanka Trump believed the Bill Barr version of who had won and who had lost. Um, All the campaign officials, from the lawyer to the data guy, and and again, I've been on winning campaigns, I've been on losing campaigns, and the data guy only goes in when you've lost. And they go through the county by county, and they show you what you needed to hit. If you're going to win Ohio, you needed to be here. So they proved beyond any shadow of a doubt that Donald Trump knew he lost. And yet, he used all the levers of the executive branch of government to overturn election. Liz Cheney's already read from the statute that she thinks Trump violated. Tell me what the other side of the argument is. Well, I, I think it's like in some respect, people are comparing this to a jury or a courtroom. Actually, to me, the, the better analogy is this is like a grand jury. I mean, this is like the prosecutor presenting all of the witness testimony, all of the deposition testimony, all the documentary evidence in a very, very powerful presentation. And it leaves the grand jury uh, no conclusion other than to say that there is a likelihood, probability that a crime has occurred here and that someone should be charged. But that doesn't really answer the question about whether or not the Justice Department as a prudential matter wants to bring charges against a former president. I mean, as you well understand, Nicole, and I think everybody around this table understands, that takes the United States into a very different territory than we've been in our history. And maybe these circumstances warrant it. Maybe this is the only president in history who's ever tried to prevent the peaceful transfer of power and has done so unconstitutionally, illegally, and through violence. So maybe it's warranted. I just don't believe that Judge Garland has made that conclusion yet. What do you think? You know, I think we have, I don't know, I'm trying to be candid and, and, and honest. I'm not sure I'd say today, put the guy in handcuffs and march him off to prison. But then again, I think that the testimony last night that was presented was so powerful that this is a damn close call. Well, I, I think we're also beyond, we're already in an unprecedented moment. And I think I think the importance, Betsy Woodruff-Swan, of the evidence being presented that Republicans sought pardons, we were awash in knowledge of criminal conduct. It went beyond intent. Republicans seeking pardons in the final days of the Trump presidency is something we knew. There, there was contemporaneous reporting in multiple news organizations um, about that process. But what we learned last night was that the, the guy plotting not just the coup against the U.S. government, but the coup inside DOJ to help overthrow the U.S. government sought a pardon. I mean, it's, it's pretty damning evidence of knowledge of criminal conduct. We also know that McCarthy was aware of it. It's on those tapes from Alex Burns and Jonathan Martin. Yeah. And Scott Perry has himself, I believe, has pushed back against the testimony that was presented in the hearing last night regarding his effort to find a pardon. And in your interview earlier with Chairman Thompson, he seemed almost to allude to that a little bit. Uh, He said that anyone who thinks that testimony and evidence presented during these hearings is incorrect, there's an open door policy. All they have Open to do is come night, in, right? <laughs> go under oath, 
<laughs> exactly. And tell their side of the story. He basically said, Hey, Scott Perry and everybody else, you're all welcome to stop by. If you're worried about, uh, about the facts that as they're being presented, that's the test for Perry. Of course, does he actually go under oath? He now has an opportunity to do so. And while I wouldn't hold my breath necessarily. Clearly the chairman was telegraphing that that's an option that's available to him. Additionally, Perry's is interesting for all the reasons that you just laid out. But what we've also reported is that Cassidy Hutchinson testified to the select committee that she saw Mark Meadows burn papers in his White House office after having a meeting there with Scott Perry. That's the kind of thing that just raises all sorts of huge questions regarding the role that this man, that this member of Congress played in the final weeks of the Trump presidency, as well as the nature of his relationship with Mark Meadows, who, of course, famously has refused to answer questions in an interview with a select committee. He's pairing himself as congressman is such an important figure. And I would expect we're going to be hearing more about him in the coming weeks as these hearings progress. Frank, I worked in um, a White House that gets justifiably criticized for all sorts of things, but nobody ever burned anything anywhere ever. The idea that people are burning paper is is, is like it's like straight out of a bad Sopranos outtake. What? <laughs> yeah, and and didn't set off the the, the smoke alarms and the sprinklers. Um, you know, this is craziness. As as or as Attorney General Barr said in the clip last night, this is crazy stuff. Um, look, I, I think they've got the goods, I, the confidence level, your interview, uh, your brief interview that you led with, with Bernie uh, Thompson, this is, this, I, I, there's a lot there to unpack. Um, one of the things that I saw in the interview was this discussion of, and think about this. We know this is coming to us on two fronts. The committee's approaching this two ways. It's all about the violence on January 6th, planning, preparation, Who's behind that? And then, of course, all of the machinations to get the uh, election results overturned th throughout the states. OK, with regard to the to the violence, uh, Chairman Thompson says, don't forget that Trump had already been told on that day, you're not going down the street to the Capitol. Secret Service says not, it's not happening. He's up on the podium at the rally that day and he says to the crowd, I'm going with you. We're going to walk to the Capitol. Right. I'm going with you. Here's the significance of that and why why Thompson is, is mentioning this. Criminal intent. Right. You've been told it's not happening. We've you and I have talked about how that breach of the Capitol that day doesn't happen without the crowd and the domestic extremist groups right. working in concert with each other. You know, they don't, the crowd may not even have any clue. Right. That this is wow. We're part of a larger plan here to get the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers in the door, as and we're, we're going to be human leverage to do that. But Trump knows that the crowd is necessary to get the extremist groups inside the door, because either one of them alone, it's not happening. The, the, the Capitol Police will fend them off. They're, they're, they're in concert with each other. Trump signals the crowd to go, even knowing he can't go with them, says he's going. That's where I think the committee is going on that on that note. Well, Frank, let me press you here, because I mean, this is what the documentary filmmaker 
testifies to. He testifies to the fact that the extremist groups, they were not at the rally because they headed toward the Capitol before Trump even started speaking, I believe. And it's all date stamped video. They had time to go for tacos, as the witness testified to. And that's either as Trump is speaking or, or right before it. So t tell me more about what sort of evidence um, you're now looking for now that the two pieces of the insurrection being successful and, and in terms of the breach of the Capitol, it was wildly successful. It it worked. Pence left. They all left. I mean, but for Pence refusing to get in the car, they basically pulled off exactly what they sought to pull off. Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated and keyed in on this, on this domestic extremist violence uh, angle, uh, because, first of all, I think it's a slam dunk on the other on the other approach, by the way. I think the machinations to overturn the election, get alternate slates of electors. I, I think that's a slam dunk. But I'm intrigued on where they're going with the, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, because we know, as we've covered this through the years, that, that there's strong connections between people like Roger Stone, um, uh, Matt Gates, uh, uh, Ted Cruz showing up, you know, and, and Oath, where Oath Keepers show up. All of this, Steve Bannon. Right. And I think this is going to come together. That's what I'll be looking for is who is it close to Trump who's really pulling the strings and coordinating this? And what have they shared with President Trump? Um, I, I live blogged last night for MSNBC during the hearings. One of the one of the posts I, I, uh, I posted was 1957. J. Edgar Hoover had refused to understand that there was an organized mafia in America that posed any kind of a threat. Some local cops in upstate New York trip over a meeting of a hundred Italian mobsters, including 60 uh, capos in one place that proved there's an organized threat. That the video, where, where am I going with this? The video that that documentarian took in the parking garage yeah. of, of an Oath Keepers leader and, and the Proud Boys leader meeting is that kind of wake up call for law enforcement and for America about the domestic extremist threat that we're currently facing. That's so interesting. You're the three that I wanted to speak to most. Thank you so much for starting us off. Betsy Woodruff-Swan, Frank Figluzzi, Jeremy Bash, great to see all of you. Much more ahead for us. Up next, what we learned about Mark Meadows' PR strategy on January 6th to try and sell the narrative of who was in charge while the Capitol was being attacked. Stay with us. Not only did President Trump refuse to tell the mob to leave the Capitol, he placed no call to any element of the United States government to instruct that the Capitol be defended. He did not call his Secretary of Defense on January 6th. He did not talk to his Attorney General. He did not talk to the Department of Homeland Security. President Trump gave no order to deploy the National Guard that day. And he made no effort to work with the Department of Justice to coordinate and, and deploy law enforcement assets. But Vice President Pence did each of those things. It was another stunning revelation for many reasons from the January 6th committee. The complete inaction from the president, an attempt to fill in that missing call log, those hours that are missing. And Liz's testimony there that Trump refused to call the military as his supporters stormed and, and vandalized and, and beat, engaged in combat 
with law enforcement officials protecting the U.S. Capitol. Committee Vice Chair Liz Cheney then introduced testimony from General Mark Milley. He's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. They confirmed that while Pence took all of those actions that Trump was willing to do, his team still came back and tried to clean that up and insisted on Milley getting involved in spinning how his inaction would look and how they wanted Milley to rewrite the narrative. Watch. So with two or three calls with Vice President Pence, he was very animated and he issued very explicit, uh, very direct, unambiguous orders. There was no question about that. And he, and he was, and, and, and I can get you the exact quotes, I guess, from some of our records somewhere, but he was very animated, very direct, very firm uh, and to Secretary Miller. Get the military down here, get the guard down here, put down this uh, situation, uh, et cetera. By contrast, here is General Milley's description of his conversation with President Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, on January 6th. He said, um, we, have, we have to kill the narrative that the vice president is making all the decisions. Uh, we need to establish the narrative that um, you know that the president is still in charge and that things are steady or stable or what's that thing. I immediately interpret that as politics, politics, politics. Uh, red flag for me personally, no action, but I remember it distinctly. Joining us now, Jonathan Lemire, White House Bureau Chief for Politico, the host of MSNBC's Way Too Early, also an MSNBC uh, political analyst. Uh, Rick Stengel is here, MSNBC politi- political analyst and a former top official in the U.S. State Department. Um, Jonathan Lemire, um, two questions for you. One, it looks like even with some missing calls in the log, what the committee's investigators have done has gone the other way. And to answer questions about whether Trump did or did not talk to the military did or did not talk to the attorney general, did or did not engage DHS, did or did not call for the National Guard. They, they obviously had that information from other agencies. Liz testified to it. Um, your, your thought about that investigative work. And then this bigger question that I want to ask both of you about, who was the nation's commander in chief on January 6th? I think what is clear, one of the findings from last night's blockbuster and rather stunning first day of these hearings is that it was a dereliction of duty uh, from the president of the United States on the day that presented the greatest challenge to his term, a challenge completely of his own creation. Uh, it was very clear, first of all, in the investigative work, they worked, that the agent, the committee worked from the outside in, that even if the White House wasn't going to cooperate, even if the White House was having missing phone logs, they would talk to everyone else and recreate the day and piece together then President Trump's actions on January 6th. And we know he spent the vast majority of it in the private dining room just off the Oval Office where there's a bank of televisions. And he watched with glee at times when he was watching scenes of the riot and the violence uh, at the Capitol. And it was very clear he couldn't be moved. We know from Mark Meadows' text messages how many Republicans, how many Fox News hosts, how many Trump allies were pleading with him to do something he didn't. We know that there are some aides who burst into the Oval Office, including his daughter, Ivanka Trump, pleaded with him to do something he didn't. So this fell to the vice president, Mike Pence, whose life was in jeopardy. Uh, there were hang Mike Pence chants ringing through the Capitol. Donald Trump per the committee last night, was approving of these chants. And Pence, with his life in danger, his family alongside, it was up to him 
to make these calls, to mobile, to call the Pentagon, to get the National Guard to finally be deployed. He had to do it because Donald Trump, the man who created this siege, this riot, this insurrection, couldn't be bothered. And so many of the things that the right has trotted out that, that sort of veered from, from spin to BS to, to sort of malicious, intentional lies was dispensed with once and for all. I mean, we have the testimony that Mark Short went to the Secret Service the day before, 24 hours ahead of time, and said, President, Vice President's going to be in danger tomorrow. I mean, there is nothing that wasn't known to the most senior White House officials about violence on the 6th, Rick. Yes, well, I, I'm glad you've zeroed in on this particular uh, passage. Um, it's my favorite one because I think it crystallizes so much about Donald Trump himself and the Trump administration. I have a slightly more radical interpretation uh, of what was happening there, which is that Donald Trump has no idea how to be president. He had no idea how to govern, even after one term in office. He would have no idea that he needed to call the chairman of the Joint Chiefs or the Secretary of Defense, or the Department of Homeland Security, or the Attorney General, doesn't know how to operate the system. What we he had is the contrast all of them to Mike steal Pence. voting machines. I mean, he did a week earlier when he wanted the Pentagon and the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Justice to go steal voting machines. He just didn't know how to deploy them to save anybody, including Mike Pence. He, but in every memoir that's been written, he does. He says that in general in the Oval Office, and he hopes people comply. But if you had to say to him, who do you call to steal voting machines? He wouldn't know. He doesn't even know the basic thing about how to be the chief executive officer of the United States. And the contrast with Mike Pence is stunning. Mike Pence is a longtime government employee. He knew exactly what to do. He needed to call the attorney general. He needed to call uh, the joint chiefs. He needed to call about the National Guard. I actually think Donald Trump he was frozen because the narrative was going the wrong way and he had no idea what to do. And that also crystallizes the other idea is that being president for him was only about the narrative. The narrative being presidential was a presidential narrative. He had no idea how to govern. And Mark Meadows became the, the fall guy, the only guy who could try to execute that for him. It, it's just he was just an empty, empty suit. The emperor had no clothes. Uh, although he endangered democracy, both through ignorance and through venom. I'm going to ask both of you to stick around. Uh, when we come back, the committee last night speaking with one of the first law enforcement officers who was injured in the riot. We'll bring you her emotional testimony next. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.
what I saw was just a, a war scene. It, it was something like I had seen out of the movies. There were officers on the ground, um, you know, they were bleeding, they were throwing up, they were, you know, they had, I mean, I saw friends with blood all over their faces. I was slipping in people's blood. It was carnage, it was chaos. Never in my wildest dreams did I think that as a police officer, as a law enforcement officer, I would find myself in the middle of a battle. That was perhaps the most emotional part of last night. It was U.S. Capitol Police Officer Caroline Edwards describing her horrific firsthand experience as she fought back against the Trump mob, calling it nothing less than a war scene. Edwards became, for many, the face of the violence encountered by law enforcement officials that day. More than 100 of them were badly beaten and left injured. We're back with Jonathan and Rick. Um, Jonathan, she, she, all these officers, we, we got to speak to Harry Dunn before the testimony. I, I know, you know, we've been, it's an honor to get to speak to some of these law enforcement officials about what they endured that day. Something about her, her testimony, bringing it back a year and a half later, took you right back to the moments when we were all watching it on our TVs. Yeah, it really did. And she was the human face last night of what happened that day. She herself suffered a traumatic brain injury uh, and described the violence she saw and her colleagues get seriously injured. We know a few of them lost their lives uh, in the days that followed uh, the insurrection. And it was her, te- as, as damning as the facts were about Donald Trump's behavior that day, it was her testimony, in particular the video, the video with never before seen footage of the riot that was so striking and really grabbed people's attention last night that reiterated just how horrible that day was and how close it was to becoming that much worse. Uh, Law enforcement officials told me in the aftermath that they were afraid a lawmaker might have even been executed on live stream uh, if they had got if the mob had gotten their hands on them. Uh, And it's important for the committee to have a narrative like this to show this testimony. And per Nielsen, just a few moments ago, about 20 million Americans were watching last night. Oh, wow. I haven't seen that. Um, Rick Stengel, your your thoughts on the country being reminded of the brutal combat that these uh, law enforcement officials had to engage in to protect the Capitol? Well, yes, Nicole, you use the word combat. They're not trained for combat. They're police officers. We've been in the in the Senate and and the House a million times that they're they're trained to tell people not to bring popcorn into the well of the Senate. They needed to be trained that day for military combat. And You know, one of the things that she spoke to was the fact that the leadership uh, of the Capitol Police was not prepared. You know, her line when she said that it's the understatement of the century that we're going to need more people, that that was very, very poor planning. And so I think we have outcomes that we need to figure out from there because um, it's not it it could happen again. Uh, These people need to be trained for different kinds of, of scenarios. And she was an example of someone who was a victim of poor training and poor planning. Jonathan, the mayor, Rick Stengel, thank you both so much for spending some time with us today. Up next, paying attention to the threats that led us to January 6th and how those threats continue not just to exist, but to grow today. Right after a quick break, stay with us. Within democracies, populist appeals grounded in fear and bigotry and resentment have elevated leaders who, once they're in office, have sought to systematically undermine democratic institutions and entrench themselves 
in power. In my own country, the forces that unleashed mob violence on our capital are still churning out misinformation and conspiracy theories. For those of us who fervently believe in the ideals of democracy, the question is, how do we respond? Hi again, everyone. It's five o'clock in New York. How do we respond? The answer to President Barack Obama's question will very well determine not only the fate of our union, but the fate of democracies all around the world. The attempted coup on January 6th, about which we already know so much more after last night, was just a single chapter in a much larger global assault on democracy and the rule of law. In many ways, that will be the January 6th Select Committee's most important job over these next few weeks, convincing millions of people that the insurrection wasn't some one-off event. Not only do the threats we faced that day still exist, but they are gathering strength by the hour. Committee Chairman Benny Thompson last night on the stakes of this moment. January 6th and the lies that led to insurrection have put two and a half centuries of constitutional democracy at risk. The world is watching what we do here. America has long been expected to be a shining city on the hill, a beacon of hope and freedom, a model for others when we are at our best. How can we play that role when our house is in such disorder? We must confront the truth with candor, resolve, and determination. We need to show that we are worthy of the gifts that are the birthright of every American. It's not over. What happens if and when Donald Trump tries to win again? Just listen to the way the New York Times' Peter Baker describes what we all saw last night in chilling fashion. Quote, in the entire 246-year history of the U.S., there was surely never a more damning indictment presented against an American president than outlined on Thursday night in a cavernous congressional hearing room where the future of democracy felt on the line. Other presidents have been accused of wrongdoing, even high crimes and misdemeanors. But the case against Donald J. Trump, mounted by the bipartisan House Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol, describes not just a rogue president, but a would-be autocrat willing to shred the Constitution to hang on to power at all costs. A would-be autocrat in the United States of America, here in our lifetimes, will repeat President Obama's vital question, how do we respond? It's where we begin the hour with some of our most favorite reporters and friends. Harry Littman's here, former U.S. attorney, former deputy assistant attorney general, and the host of the Talking Feds podcast. Also here, Eddie Glaude, chair of the Department of African-American Studies at Princeton University, also an MSNBC political analyst. And with us at the table, Tim O'Brien, senior columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Eddie, I thought this speech from President Obama was, was I hate to use this with, with President Obama's speeches because they're, they're all important and deliberate, but it, it had a it had a sort of an arm touching to his convention speech where I'd never seen him so shaken about what was on the line in the general election in 2020. And, and in this speech, sort of a, a hand ahead to the future of what we do next determines everything, determines if we, you know, you and I talk a lot about um, uh, the state of our democracy. It, it feels like it's ailing in a lot of ways. But what we do right now will determine if we even continue to live in one, was President Obama's point. I think he's absolutely right. And I think he, he underlined 
the, the, the crisis we face. And, you know, what's interesting, Nicole, is that we oftentimes look at the threats, the dangers to liberal democracy. And I think what's really important for us to, to try to wrap our minds around are what are the problems within liberal democracies that lead people to reach for authoritarian and neo-fascist languages. So we can identify these illiberal forces, these authoritarian forces, but what is it about the way in which we've organized our society, the, the wealth gap, inequality, uh, the fact that working people can't seem to keep their noses above water, the contradictions within liberal democracies that lead people to reach for these old languages in order to get some sense of order and some sense of stability. So to answer President Obama's question requires not only looking outward, but it requires a deep introspective look at what the contradictions that define our current way of being, our current way of living. And, you know, both both President Obama's speech, I'm going to play some more of it, and Congresswoman Liz Cheney last night in the in the, in the hearing, they mince no words to him about whose, whose fault this is. Here's Liz Cheney um, laying the blame with the feet of her own uh, party. There's a reason why people serving in our government take an oath to the Constitution. As our founding fathers recognized, democracy is fragile. People in positions of public trust are duty-bound to defend it, to step forward when action is required. In our country, we don't swear an oath to an individual or a political party. We take our oath to defend the United States Constitution. And that oath must mean something. Liz Cheney would go on in those comments to describe Republicans as a lasting stain, their dishonor as a lasting stain on our democracy. Um, I think in this climate of, of, of um, sort of hardened partisans, it's always notable when a Republican takes on her own party in such stark and vicious terms. And courageous terms. You know, the, the, the standard sort of Trumpista response to the January 6 hearings are, well, this was just a one-off, the crowd got wild. We now know from ample evidence and months and months of reporting that it wasn't a one-off. It was an outcome of a month-long effort to overthrow the government. The other argument is that even if you accept that, that it was an attempted coup, well, it was stopped and we moved on. Well, we haven't moved on. Uh, you know, I covered, I covered um, the 1993 Trade Center bombing as a reporter. And there's a famous anecdote that a couple of years after that, the FBI was flying Ramsey Youssef after he had been arrested um, into New York in a helicopter. And they pulled his blindfold down and they showed him that the World Trade Center was still standing. And he said, well, if we had enough money, it wouldn't be. And lo and behold, about six years after that, the World Trade Center came down. Uh, I think we should see what happened here in January of 2020, 2021. Um, as a warm-up act for what could happen in the future. And if we assume that our institutions were strong enough to get past this moment and the things that fed into Trump's ability to try to uh, pervert a number of federal agencies, the CIA, the Justice Department, the Defense Department, to put boots on the ground to at least influence them at a minimum to influence domestic terrorists, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, to march into Washington, uh, and then to pressure members of his own cabinet to overturn the government that's not going away. We could end up in 2024 with Trump in the White House again and the Republicans who enabled him running Congress. And we're going to deal with these same issues then. And it's going to take a lot of courage from the Liz Cheney's of the world to to put a blockade in front of that. I mean, it's a chilling analogy. It's a chilling parallel that you draw. Um, 
I guess one important difference is that we weren't particularly divided in terms of trying. We failed, but we weren't particularly divided in terms of how we protect ourselves from that threat. You got one party refusing to even air to say there was a threat correct yeah. calling it in, and it's 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 not just downplaying it it's, it's absolutely it's whitewashing it, it calling it a, a, a tourist event right and it doesn't exist and they have a i think a propaganda arm in fox news i don't even think we should call it fox news fox anymore. channel yeah fox prop whatever you want to call it but they that's good you know their their goal is to simply say the opposition is lying to you, the opposition isn't mature enough to wield power, only Republicans that are line up with what Tucker Carlson's philosophy of the universe is should have power because their ultimate goal is power in and of itself. They're not policy-oriented. They are not traditional conservatives by any stretch of the imagination. They're thugs, and they want to own the minds of their supporters, and so they're happy not to tell them the truth. They do it, I think, without guilt and without any kind of consciousness. You know, this idea that... Um, CNN and MSNBC are left-leaning and Fox is right-leaning and that, you know, balances out. MSNBC and CNN do not do what Fox does. Fox sits on the air and it fabricates and it invents things in order to achieve an agenda. That's different from trying to analyze and report facts. Um, I want to show you more of what President Obama suggested we do in this moment, Harry Lippmann. Here's more from his speech. If we want democracy to flourish... We will have to fight for it. We will have to nurture it. We will have to demonstrate its value again and again in improving the lives of ordinary people. And we will also have to be willing to look squarely at the shortcomings of our own democracies. Not the ideal, but the reality of our own democracies. Only then will we be able to develop a better story of what democracy can be and must be in this rapidly changing world. So, Harry Lemon, I listened to that and I thought that what one of the signs of uh, the sickness of our democracy is the weakness of the rule of law. And a lot of that, all of that was done on Donald Trump's watch. He spent five years calling for the prosecution of his former political opponent, Hillary Clinton, then of Jim Comey. Andrew McCabe was accused of treason. He attacked Pete Strzok. And he used the bully pulpit of the American presidency, the commander in chief of the largest military in the world, to assault the rule of law day after day after day after day after day. And I wonder what you think the rule of law means in this country now and what it means that we have a Justice Department that has shown no sign that has even commenced an investigation into Donald Trump's efforts, as proven last night by Liz Cheney, to overthrow the government he led. What, what, how should we feel about the rule of law now under Merrick Garland? What a big question. Let me, let me just say, first, I think he is dead on in locating the responsibility with us. I've had a lot of conversations since last night about, well, will they persuade people? What will this mean for the midterms, et cetera? Will it change the DOJ's mind? 
First and foremost, they did an excellent job last night, but it is to us now. You know, it's a republic if we can keep it. And I think that element has been lost in the overall sort of political balancing of what they're about. What this has to ultimately be about in history and now is the uh, ability of the American people to preserve their institutions. And one more point along these lines that I just thought of when you were seeing Liz Cheney, you know, this this what's always been a kind of bromide. Oh, the founders were, you know, told us about the fragility of our democracy, et cetera. It is so hit hit home. You can read the Federalist Papers and they really drew this exact kind of danger. We've had a 200 plus really lucky, prosperous run that really is now under under a kind of danger it's never been except maybe the Civil War. To your point, yes, look, a, a country looked to Russia or look to Turkey, a country with no reliable rule of law where there's different rules for the rich or the powerful is can't be said to be a democracy. It's one of the shining and necessary institutions. And he put pressure on that as much as anywhere else. By and large, I've got to say, the legal institutions held the line better than some others did during the Trump era. But going forward, it's all now, you know, so completely imperiled. Well, and I think it's it's an it's a mixed picture, to be honest. I mean, Harry Lippman, the U.S. Supreme Court did rule um, with the exception of one justice. And we'll talk about him in a second to turn over the documents. And, And you saw how this committee has poured over all of the evidence that has been availed to it. They have made good, responsible use of it. Um, every court throughout Donald Trump's spurious claims of election fraud. So you are correct. And, and it's a federal judge in, in um, Judge David Carter, who has already asserted, based on the evidence he's seen in the narrow cases involving John Eastman, that felony crimes committed by Donald Trump and John Eastman likely have happened already. But so, so I don't want to paint in a broad brush. I think that's what the other side does. But the picture is complicated by the fact that there is, I mean, Jeremy Bash articulated it in the last hour. He's not seen enough yet to say that an investigation to Donald Trump is warranted. And I guess my question for you is, do you think the rule of law snaps back after being demolished and annihilated for four years by restraint? Or do you think that someone should make the point that no one is above the law? And whose job is that? All right. So it is the Department of Justice's. It is snapping back. And they do have the goods already on at least one charge against Trump. I came to this view slowly, as I think uh, they they hopefully will, which is that the only thing worse than not prosecuting than than prosecuting him would be not prosecuting him. Yes, it is it is to Merrick Garland to make that point, but but many things will um, will factor into it. It would be the biggest step for a Department of Justice ever to have taken. I don't mean to minimize it, but I just don't want to think of it in isolation to the judgment of the American people overall that that this can't can't stand and has and has to be curtailed. But yes, if there's no accountability at the and the rule of law, then we are in sorry shape. And and I guess Eddie God, I push on this because I think the American people did what they were asked to do. President Obama gave that speech. President Biden gave the speeches. They made the case to the country during the general election campaign of 2020. And the country chose Democrats to run both chambers of Congress and to run the White House. And I think we've had a lot of conversations about the fact that they are the only party at this point that stands squarely on the side of preserving, protecting, continuing to 
keep America a democracy. And yet there is hesitancy when the when the other side, which is lurching toward autocracy, as Liz Cheney laid out last night, she described them as dishonored until the end of time, has no hesitation. How do you evaluate that asymmetry? You know, you know, Nicole, I've been trying to wrap my mind around it and I I trace it back historically, just really quickly uh, to the Civil War. And the reason why I reach for the Civil War is because it was brother against brother. It's family. And there was this sense that, you know, the kind of split, the torturous split, the carnage that left that was left on the battlefield as a result, you know, in some ways traumatized the nation. I mean, deeply, profoundly. And so Andrew Johnson, right, was impeached because he did not want to hold the traitors accountable. Or think about Gerald Ford not wanting to hold Richard Nixon accountable. And the reason given in both instances was that it would further tear the country apart. And so there is this fear that if we hold Donald Trump accountable, that those who are in fact followers of Trump or committed to that ideology, that somehow they will split from the nation or they will rebel. So I think at the heart of this hesitancy is a deep-seated fear that cuts to the heart of the country's, the split in the country, Nicole. And I think that's what we have to kind of wrap our minds around. And we have to wrap our minds around as well. What does it mean not to hold these people accountable? Because what we know is that what followed from the Civil War and what followed from Richard Nixon has had the country by the throat ever since. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess, Eddie, I would just follow up and say, doesn't the insurrection in the video that we all watched again as, as a nation, with very few exceptions last night, prove that that's already happened? Not holding him accountable, emboldening him at Absolutely. every step, has already cleaved the country apart. We, we now aren't so divided in our beliefs. We're so divided in our realities. It's already happened. Absolutely. The Cold Civil War turned hot on January 6th. And so now, as we've said over and over on your show, and I've said, we've said in our conversations, a choice has to be made. And people have to stop tiptoeing, it seems to me. We have to salvage the republic. We have to save the republic. And that's going to require hard choices, hard decisions. And it begins with holding Donald Trump and his minions accountable. And truthful conversations like this one. Um, everyone sticks around for more. When we come back, the January 6th committee will be turning its attention to Fox News, one of the biggest purveyors of the disgraced ex-president's big lie and other stuff. It comes after Fox News went, we're not going to call it news. What do you call it? Fox Prop? Fox Prop. Fox Prop went to great lengths last night to avoid exposing its viewers to the truth, the horrors of the coupon. We'll show you that after a break. And then later in the show, we'll shift gears to the topic of gun safety. A March for Our Lives rally is happening right now at the U.S. Capitol ahead of a big weekend of protests as Senate negotiators continue to attest to the fact that a deal on safety measures is actually within reach this time. And the new challenge facing President Joe Biden's White House on the coronavirus. Dr. Ashish Shah will be our guest later in the program. Deadline White House continues after a quick break. Please stay with us. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Tonight, I say this to my Republican colleagues who are defending the indefensible. 
There will come a day when Donald Trump is gone, but your dishonor will remain. Finally, I ask all of our fellow Americans, as you watch our hearings over the coming weeks, please remember what's at stake. Your dishonor will remain. That was January 6th Select Committee Vice Chair Liz Cheney, leading by her own example, speaking directly to members of her own party about the importance of truth and then speaking to all Americans about the importance of their investigation, which we learned this morning will include live testimony on Monday from a gentleman named Chris Steyerwald. He is the former Fox News political editor. He angered Donald Trump's team for being the first network in this country to call the state of Arizona for Joe Biden in the 2020 presidential election, all but confirming Trump's defeat. Starwalt told News Nation, where he now works as the political editor there, that he was, quote, asked to testify and is, quote, not in a position to discuss about what. He's been sharply critical of Fox's coverage of the election and the big lie. That coverage culminated last night in what The New York Times describes as a revisionist history lesson of January 6. Fox commentators spoke over live images of the hearing which one Tucker Carlson called propaganda. Fox cut away from key images and the left of your screen is part of that never before seen video the committee presented last night. It aired across every other network in this country. Violent rioters smashing windows and breaching the Capitol. On the right side, that same moment on Fox News, the network cuts away and they show shots of a live audience watching the video of the violent Trump supporters attacking the Capitol and our democracy. Joining our coverage is Nick Confessori, New York Times political and investigative reporter, as well as an MSNBC political analyst. So, Nick, you have done the definitive piece of data-driven reporting about Tucker Carlson. I, I you know, the, 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 Jonathan Lemire said in the last hour that the, the ratings have come in and um, people that watched the hearings far outnumber people who watched Fox News. Why do you think they made this bad? I mean, if they had aired the hearings, even if they'd interjected at different points to I don't know, respond or, or push back. And we do that to Governor Abbott when he lies on TV. I mean, why Why do you think they made the decision not to? Why does it threaten them so much to show their viewers the truth, just the footage of January 6th? Fox didn't have a choice, Nicole, and for two reasons. The first reason is that Fox is part of this story. Um, in the wake of the election, Fox promoted claims of election fraud that were not true. The primetime hosts on Fox just relentlessly pushed claims the election was biased or rigged. <clears throat> but the second reason is for over a year and a half, primetime hosts, especially Tucker Carlson, have been telling viewers the protesters who attacked the Capitol that day were victims, were innocent Americans who were angry over um, claims of election fraud that were real, uh, that they were the victims, not the aggressors. To even show the video we saw last night, forget the commentary, forget the opening remarks from Cheney or Thompson or anyone else. If they just showed the video of those people assaulting officers of the law, breaking windows, um, it, it would just put to a lie the story that Fox, you know, their, their, their kind of audience has been hearing for a year and a half. They couldn't show it. Let me show you um, what Nick is talking about, how Fox became part of the story last night. Um, actually, I think we had this. Let me play this. This is Liz Cheney describing a text exchange between uh, Kaylee McEnany, who was the White House press secretary, and Sean Hannity. But most emblematic of those days is this exchange of texts between Sean Hannity and former President uh, Trump's press secretary, Kaylee McEnany. 
Sean Hannity wrote, in part, Key now, no more crazy people, no more stolen election talk. Yes, impeachment and 25th Amendment are real. Many people will quit. Ms. McEnany responded, in part, love that. That's the playbook. The White House staff knew that President Trump was willing to entertain and use conspiracy theories to achieve his ends. They knew the president needed to be cut off from all of those who had encouraged him. They knew that President Donald Trump was too dangerous to be left alone, at least until he left office on January 20th. And what that testimony makes clear is that, you know, what we know already from this committee's work is where there's smoke, there's fire. Where those texts exist, there exists usually a trove that proves the point over and over and over again. But these ones prove that after 1-6, even Sean Hannity thought it, impeachment and the 25th Amendment were real and happening and understood that many people would quit, Nick. That's right. And look, he understood the risk to the president at the time. He was trying to land the plane, quote unquote, as so many people in the White House there were trying to land the plane, which essentially meant to try to get the president to the end of his term without some kind of extra constitutional action. But on TV, he and other hosts on Fox have played a very different role. And what they have done is try to invert their narrative of January 6th and tell their audience that the people who attacked the Capitol were the good guys and the victims and the people who want to investigate them are unfair and mean and part of a deep state plot to victimize conservatives. That has been the narrative on the channel for the last 18 months. And to show those videos, to show the police officers body cams of them being assaulted, of breaking windows, um, of an officer testifying about the blood on the floor of the steps of the Capitol, to show that to their viewers would undermine the entire story they have chosen to tell for the last 18 months. What was... Interesting to me, Harry Lippman, is that Liz made the argument against Republicans and Trump using Republicans close to Trump. And Chris Steyerwalt is is um, someone at Fox News who was a little bit behind the scenes, but he appeared on the air. Um, this is something he wrote in the L.A. Times. He, he writes this at the end of January 2021. The rebellion on the populist right against the results of the 2020 election was partly a cynical knowing effort by political operators and their hype men in the media to steal an election or at least get rich trying. But it was also the tragic consequence of the informational malnourishment so badly afflicting the nation. When I defended the call for Biden in the Arizona election, I became a target of murderous rage, murderous rage from consumers who were furious and not having their views confirmed. Um, no one should face that kind of rage and threat. It's really scary. And Fox News created that market by feeding it and malnourishing it in terms of news and information. Yeah, you know, something prosecutors think about a lot when they're putting witnesses on is called sponsorship theory, which means that people really react information depending on who's saying it. So having things come out of his mouth is apt to be more prejudicial toward Fox, just like having Bill Barr and Ivanka Trump. 
I do have to say, though, Nicole, and, and let me just say personally, I I specifically am not a contributor at any network, so I can do all of them. I used to do Fox News, uh, and I thought maybe a couple people might listen. After Nick's article, I've just stopped doing it because it just feels to me it's not a news network, and I don't want to treat it that way. Even so... I'm a little surprised they're taking that th- this is a very ambitious committee with everything they're taking on all the witnesses they have Mike Ludig and and the the, the White House people the DOJ are they really also going to be lumping in Fox News it's a virtuous cause but man oh man they are really it's, it's a whole nother battle but there's just no doubt that that's part of the of the larger story Huge part of it. Um, and again, like the threat, one that isn't in the rearview mirror, but still present today and um, yeah. in the future. I, 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 you know, I had this thought, Tim, that what I thought this signaled was the weakness internally of people like Dana Perino and Brett Baer. I guess Chris Wallace is over at CNN now and the strength and the almost, you know, abandonment of fighting for anything resembling a news network by, by, I guess, I think Martha McCallum sometimes anchors news events. I actually thought that inside Fox, it was an interesting moment that, that where there might've in the past have been a battle between people like Chris Wallace and Brett Baer and the forces like Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingraham, and John Hannity, it looks, it's not even clear that, that battle was waged. Well, and you're leaving the most important actor out, Lachlan Murdoch. Rupert Murdoch's son runs that network. The family controls the company. If they wanted that network to do something other than engage in propaganda and to delude people and to serve he other goals, he, he could put anybody he wants in that anchor seat. Tucker Carlson exists because Lachlan Murdoch wants him to exist. So the Murdochs also have to be held accountable as owners in terms of what they're putting on the air every night. Um, Eddie, I also came to the conclusion as the night wore on that we don't need 100 percent of Americans to do anything. And so I'm, I'm not I think, you know, I know Adam Kinzinger, a member of the select committee, sort of fixated on Fox and um, gave him a hard time for not carrying it. I, I I don't think that's a point. I think it's about reassembling the coalition, the voting coalition in 2018, the voting coalition in 2020, and reminding them what President Obama reminded them today, that nothing less than the state of our democracy is on the line. Right. There, there are, there's a segment of the American population that's concerned about uh, government taking away their guns, government taking away their liberty. But there's also a segment of the population who's concerned about folks trying to take away our democracy. And I think this committee has to make not just simply truth claims. It has to appeal at the visceral level, at the level of the passions around our commitment to democracy. But I should say this to connect it to our first segment, Nicole. Remember, there are three, there are four elements to democracy functioning. There are, of course, the legislative branch, and we've experienced, we're at gerrymandered house, a dysfunctional Senate. There's the executive branch. We've experienced the, the distortions of an imperial presidency. We've experienced a politicized judiciary. But there's also the fourth estate. The fourth estate, the role of the press in creating the deliberative space so citizens can engage in the back and forth exchange. And so we've seen the kind of corruption of the other very, the three other various portions or or institutions Mm. of democracy with Fox News. It's not about the fragmentation of media. It's not about social, social platforms or social media with Fox prop, as it were. We're seeing the corruption of an aspect of the fourth estate that contributes to the crises 
of American democracy that we began with, with President Obama's uh, remarks. And we need to understand it as such. I love that Tim O'Brien has renamed Fox News Fox Proper Propaganda, right? <laughs> I'm going to copyright that right I now. I love it. You should. Break. You should before I forget and steal it. <laughs> Nick Avasori, Harry Lemon, Eddie Glott, thank you all so much for being part of this conversation today. Tim sticks around a little longer, shifting gears for us. As gun safety advocates rally outside the U.S. Capitol for common sense gun reforms, the latest on where that bipartisan group of senators stands on doing something, anything, after a horrific spate of deadly and tragic mass shootings in our country. Please stay with us. I have said, and I'll say it again, well, I'm interested in compromise. I'm not interested in just checking a box. I'm not interested in doing something unless that something is going to save lives, unless that something is going to be impactful and meaningful. My hope is that we'll be able to deliver good news to you, transformative news to you soon, because this country needs it. This country needs to know that Washington is listening to them and that if 80 and 90 percent of the American public agree on something, that democracy will deliver. Keep coming back to democracy, right? That was Senator Chris Murphy just in the last hour outside the U.S. Capitol at a rally organized by March for Our Lives and other gun safety groups saying that there is still some hope for new bipartisan gun laws in the U.S. Senate. This rally really just a prelude to the weekend as Washington and the world gear up for a new and major protest tomorrow. March for Our Lives, the organization founded by students after the Parkland shooting in 2019, will host a major rally outside the Washington Monument tomorrow afternoon, with that organization saying that more than 450 marches will take place in at least 45 states and all around the world. As Senator Murphy said there, Congress still continues to try to find a way to pass any type of new gun laws in the wake of the Uvalde and Buffalo massacres in a recent real spike of mass shootings in this country. Just yesterday, the House voted along party lines to pass red flag laws, a measure that would allow guns to be confiscated from people deemed by a court to be too dangerous to have them, like the ban of semi-automatic weapons for people under the age of 21 that passed the House of Representatives Wednesday. The bill faces near certain failure in the U.S. Senate in its current form. Joining our conversation is Shannon Watts. She is the founder of the group Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. Tim is still here as well. Shannon, what are your thoughts as we go into a week of, of activism which you know, usually they have two audiences, right, to rally the public to a cause. Public's already there. This is really just directed yep. at the men and women who work in that building, right? That's right. Uh, the cathartic moment we're all waiting for in the Senate. And, you know, we have seen thousands of students walk out of their schools. Um, we've had events in every single state. We've had rallies even twice in the last week outside the Capitol. Uh, we've sent 800,000 messages to our senators and our chapters at Moms Demand Action and Students Demand Action are exploding with new membership. And, and I just want to also make the point, though, we do need Senate to act. I do believe that they will. I'm very hopeful. But this work doesn't stop, right? We are still working in every single state to save lives through gun safety legislation. Just in the last week, we've passed sweeping gun reform legislation in New York. Uh, we've passed new gun safety policies in five cities in the state of Colorado. We passed a secure storage policy in Walnut Creek, California. And we're testifying in support of new gun safety legislation in Rhode Island and Delaware. So 
all of us need to get off the sidelines and get involved in this work where we live. It is life-saving work. And, and I am so hopeful for a vote in the Senate, but this work continues and certainly into November. Shannon, um, I want to ask you the impact of the CEOs of more than 220 U.S. companies on Thursday will release a letter calling on the Senate to take immediate action to reduce gun violence. Um, companies employ workers in all 50 states. They include Levi's, Dick's Sporting Goods, Lululemon, Lyft, Bank Capital, Bloomberg, um, Permanente Medical Group, and Unilever. W- what is the... What is the importance of that? Does that help? I mean, is that is that sort of so that lawmakers hear from some of their donors or employers back in their districts or home states? Look, I think we need the broadest coalition possible, and that needs to include law enforcement and first responders and educators and, yes, business leaders. I mean, that is a lever we've been pulling through Moms Demand Action since we started 10 years ago, right? Um, Getting companies either to change their policies or to join our coalition and support gun safety legislation. And and they do make a difference. They are considered leaders. And again, this is just one more part of the coalition to send the message that gun safety legislation isn't just good policy. It's good politics. And we need lawmakers to feel that if they don't act, there will be consequences. And and business leaders need to hold these lawmakers accountable as well. It is one of the most um, inverted issues in terms of public opinion. As Shannon has said, and, and Shannon has um, almost single-handedly changed the language that I use, and I think a lot of people use it, it is, it is a fight for gun safety legislation. It's not gun control. It's not gun, you know, it's, it's really about the stuff that everyone agrees on. And yet Republicans swim against the tide of public opinion and are successful, at least until now, in thwarting federal legislation. Because of the way the Senate is structured, you know, it gives it gives disproportionate power to states with smaller populations and enables the Congress to stand in the way of legislation that most Americans want. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. I think. You know, one of the things that Shannon just pointed to was was her success, her group's success, and others like her at changing state law to hold gun companies accountable. There are federal laws, PLACA, which makes the gun industry essentially liability-free. Consumers can't sue big gun manufacturers like they can an auto company or a pharmaceutical company for a product effect. Um, and that's been a pretty impregnable wall for a long time. The Sandy Hook families sued Remington, Fought that out for a number of years using Connecticut law, state law in Connecticut. Right, and prevailed. And prevailed and won a settlement of more than $70 million. Right now in Texas, the families there are thinking of filing a similar suit against mm-hmm. Daniel Defense, the gun company that manufactured the gun the shooter there used. Mm-hmm. I think I think victims really have to start going after companies that, that manufacture and distribute guns and sell them uh, and hold them accountable in the courts because I think it's not going to happen enough yet in the Congress. Right, right. It's, it's, um, it's, it's quite a moment. We'll continue to watch it together. Shannon Watts and Tim O'Brien, thank you both so much for spending some time with us. The Biden White House is facing a new challenge in the fight against the coronavirus. White House Pandemic Response Coordinator Dr. Ashish Shah will be our guest. After a quick break, stay with us. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. 
Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. So this month, for the very first time since the pandemic started, every single American, everyone, could have access to the COVID vaccine. The White House announced a plan yesterday to make shots available for kids under the age of five, finally, pending approval from the FDA. 10 million doses are ready and waiting for providers once authorization comes through. With the pandemic no longer at the forefront of everyone's mind, unless, of course, you have it, some parents remain hesitant about getting those shots. New York Times reports this, quote, uptake of the vaccine in other age groups offers a discouraging suggestion. Just over a third of children ages 5 to 11 have received at least one dose of a vaccine, a number that some health experts worry could forecast even lower interest among parents of younger children. Joining us now is Dr. Ashisha, White House COVID response coordinator. So Dr. Shaw, you and I had so many conversations. We both have kids. We eagerly awaited the shots for that older group, five, five to 12. And I was first in line and took my son over to uh, City Field to get a shot at a mass vaccination shot uh, center. But I, I wonder I wonder what you do about hesitancy or is, is the point just to make it available for everyone who wants it? T- talk me through that. Yeah, so Nicole, first, thanks for having me back. Um, You begin by making it available and accessible to to everyone, right? And you just make it really, really easy. That is the first step. It is obviously not the last step, but it's the first step. Uh, Second, you remember that this is a long game. When adults uh, first became eligible to be vaccinated back in December, January of 2020, 2021, about a third of adults said they would get vaccinated right away. We're up to 80% now. So you know it takes time. Third, there is a special challenge with children, which is all of the COVID misinformation that that has gone on, uh, sort of downplaying the risk of of COVID in kids, uh, upplaying any risks of vaccines. You've got to counter that. And our strategy is very clear, which is we're going to work with trusted voices, pediatricians, family physicians, faith leaders, help arm people with data and information. And we believe that in, over a longer period of time, we're going to be able to get uh, a large chunk of kids vaccinated across America. Dr. Zhao, will you just remind all of us and me what, when we're supposed to get boosted? Yeah, I know it can be confusing for a lot of folks. What I would say is uh, if it's been at least five months since you got your second shot, you need to go out and get that third shot. Uh, third shot is absolutely critical for everybody. And the good news is everybody over five is now eligible. My 10-year-old just got boosted this past week. Uh, it is absolutely essential. For people over 50, if it's been, again, if it's been a while, if it's been five months since you got your third, you are now eligible for fourth. And I've been pretty encouraging of it. It clearly helps. It keeps up that antibody level. It helps protect you against further infections. The fact that people are still getting COVID has been accepted in a new kind of way. And I, I'm sure in, in your life, in mine, I, I know people right now who who have COVID and um, it's not perhaps as terrifying, but it, it's still scary. You still read so many troubling things about long COVID. And I wonder how you navigate the anxiety of a nation that is now, whether they want to or not, being forced to live with COVID. Yeah, it's a great question, Nicole. So the first thing we are focused on is making sure that those infections don't turn into ICU stays. They don't end up killing people. And that requires two things, right? First, making sure people are up to date on their vaccines. We think that's the single most important thing you can do to prevent that. And the second is working really hard to make treatments widely available. We think that's making a really important difference. Uh, Those two things definitely lower the anxiety level, and rightly so because those two things keep you out of the hospital. 
That said, it's still an issue out there. Obviously, 100,000 cases a day is a lot of infections. Yeah. And, you know, and we want to do what we can to help keep those infections down. But the number one goal is we cannot let those infections turn into serious illness. Today, um, the U.S. changed the requirement for international travelers. Can you just talk to me about that news and, and what you see? I mean, do you see a world where there aren't restrictions and mandates, but all these tools are available? Or what, what does the future hold in terms of how we manage COVID? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, the CDC has been looking at this uh, testing mandate for a while. Uh, they made the determination that at this point, given the fact that we do have widespread availability of vaccines and therapeutics, uh, given that our ability to prevent infections from turning into serious illnesses is as strong as it's ever been, um, they don't believe that that testing mandate is necessary to protect Amer Americans in the way that it was a year and a half ago when it was first put into place. Um, I think, look, in terms of restrictions, as we develop more tools, as we're able to acquire more tools because we have the funding and have that, that will make it easier to get our lives back, to get back to things without those restrictions. Um, obviously, over time, we're going to have to monitor this closely if we see new variants. Uh, we may have to put some of these policies back in. But at this moment, I see... As long as we have the access to vaccines, treatments, tests, we can really manage our lives much more effectively. When you sort of convene um, with the different agencies that, that have a role in this, are, are you now squarely focused on moving forward, on making sure we don't regress? I mean, is there is there a hope that we'll, we'll improve the vaccines? Is the government still paying for research into long COVID. I mean, tell me what the science piece of the government's response and prevention for future variants looks like. Yeah, there is a great question. There's a huge science piece of what we do every single day. Um, we are thinking a lot about what the next generation of vaccines needs to look like. We're thinking down the road, how do we have vaccines that prevent transmission and infections? Um, there is a ton of work happening on long COVID. It's real. It's debilitating uh, for some people who end up getting it. Uh, we've got work happening at NIH. We've got the president actually tasked us for an all-of-government response to long COVID. There's wow. a lot of work happening there. Um, we are looking at this whole set of issues and asking some fundamental questions about how do we stay ahead of the virus? Mm -hmm. How do we continue to do the things that we need to do to protect Americans? This battle is not over, and we've got to continue using science to drive progress. So we still get questions, and we heard you were here today. We, we tried to get some of them in. Um, it's, it's, it's great that you're there. We, we always appreciated turning to you before you were in government. Now that you're at the table, literally it's your table. Um, we're really grateful to get to talk to you. Thank you so much, Dr. Shisha. Thank you, Nicole. A quick break for us. We will be right back. Before we go, a quick reminder for all of you. So on Monday, you can stay with MSNBC for the second January 6th committee hearing. This one is during the day. So join our network's special coverage on Morning Joe, followed by the hearing in its entirety. And then watch the January 6th hearings. The House investigates Monday, beginning at 6 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC. We'll all be back that evening. Thank you for letting us into your homes during these extraordinary times. We are so grateful. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.